Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, July 11th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, bringing the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, and many other topics, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. But the best part is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams or anything like that. And now for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses. And this is one of our former guests, Stephen Novella. The course is called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. This week, I interviewed art historian Arthur I. Miller, who also happens to have a PhD in physics from MIT. He has a new book out. It's called Colliding Worlds. And he suggests that at the forefront of contemporary art is a new movement in which artists are using science to influence their work. He's challenging the very idea that art and science are separable disciplines. Here's a clip from the interview. Many people still believe that, that there is only an aesthetics for art. There's no aesthetics for science. Uh, true, there is aesthetics for art, of classical art, of form, for example, uh, aesthetics which, which is in the eye of the beholder, but there is also aesthetics in science. There's aesthetics in biology. Uh, form is beautiful in biology, but it's form as adapted to nature. And when one gets into the physical sciences, one can even quantify aesthetics even more uh, in that, for example, we've heard the phrase, uh, this is a beautiful equation, and an equation is beautiful if, if it maintains its form onto the interchange of certain of its variables. And those interchanges, if it maintains its form, then it also implies certain symmetries in nature. And lo and behold, experiments have uh, have revealed that these symmetries actually exist. So, Chris, what do you think about that? I find it a very powerful statement. And I actually have written in the past myself about how biologists and physicists, I don't know if this is true for chemists, but um, they find a secular form of spiritual fulfillment, some of them in their research. And I emphasize the word secular, but what this means is that the understanding that science um, reveals 
brings to them uh, feelings of sublime or awe. And it's not clear this is actually very different from someone having a, a religious experience. So science has beauty in it. It has awe in it. And that's that's definitely the case. Yeah. And so what's interesting about Arthur Miller's idea now is that, in fact, it's in some ways science that is defining contemporary art, that it's at the very frontier of contemporary art, the avant-garde, etc. And that, I think, is really a new idea. So that's going to be our interview for today. But first, we have a guest with us for the first part of the show. And our guest is Joe Hansen. He's a PhD biologist who hosts the very, very awesome It's Okay to Be Smart science video series, which is produced in cooperation with PBS Digital Studios. Joe, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you here. So look, I've been watching your your videos for some time. I just watched some of the most recent ones. And there is great stuff in there. And uh, it's it's also really great animation that you do. And it's funny. It makes me wonder, how on earth do you manage to do one of these once a week? So much must go into those. Well, uh, first secret is give up on sleep completely. Yeah, um, right. uh, I'm actually very lucky to to work with a really good team here in Austin that helps me make my videos. Um, big props in the animation goes out to Andrew Matthews, my animator. I got a great director named Joe. We keep it simple. Two Joes on the show. He also does any explosions that you see are his his handiwork. Oh, that's useful. <laughs> yes. I mean, it just um, to me, it just sort of shows how the possibilities of this stuff are expanding online that we have, uh, you know, companies like, like PBS you know, forming this, this, this great kind of production support, letting us kind of do something really special on YouTube. Did you see a bump in uh, people watching your videos after Cosmos aired? Yeah, a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it's I think we're going to have to wait a little while to kind of see what the Cosmos effect is. Um, you know, something we think about a lot on YouTube is are, are we kind of talking to people who are already into science and we're kind of looking for ways to kind of spread that out to new audiences? I think that's probably some of the same concerns that people behind Cosmos have, too, is, uh, you know, not just preaching to the choir, so to speak. Absolutely. So you recently did a video about the science of Game of Thrones. And uh, I actually wrote a piece about a brain condition that is probably what Hodor is suffering from. Um, so <laughs> I just wanted to, you know, the Game of Thrones is, is, a, is a passion of mine. So let, tell us a little bit about what is the science behind Game of Thrones? Like what, what, what isn't really true and, and what is plausible? Yeah, I mean, like the first question is something like this is, is why even do this? <laughs> um, because, <laughs> well, there's that. There, I mean, this is like, this is a fantasy story, right? Um, but for me, it, it's just sort of helps to keep in mind that we shouldn't accept just pure magic is the answer. So uh, we, it, and it helps it be a little more real if we can kind of see that these things could exist in our planet and our world. Um, easy one here. We've got that wildfire that was in the, in the famous battle at King's Landing, that green flame that, 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 uh, spoiler, spoilers kind of took off the, took out the Navy. Uh, that's actually a, a, based on a weapon that was used by the ancient Greeks, uh, yeah. called Greek fire, which is a, I've a, heard of this. Yeah. Prehistoric napalm kind of, <laughs> uh, my favorite little, 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 little puppies on Game of Thrones, the dire wolves. <laughs> those actually existed in North and South America. That was a, one of those prehistoric megafauna that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of these were, were roaming the plains of, of the Americas. And you actually can go see them at the La Brea Tar Pits if you're ever in Los Angeles. Huh, and, wow. and you could domesticate them? Uh, I wonder where we go that far. <laughs> you have to keep in mind these things would have been, you know, you know, four or five feet high at the shoulder. So uh, it's not, it's like the Great Dane of, of wolves. Right. Mm -hmm. You say in the video that the the wall, the wall of ice would collapse under its own weight. 
this that's is a problem. This is right. I mean, the way that they draw it up in, in, if you see it in the show or, uh, you know, they kind of describe it in, um, in the books is it's not really that sloped. It's got some pretty straight sides and that's just not, uh, any, you know, any architect will tell you that won't work, but ice, you know, as it compresses, as we put pressure on that, you're actually going to, going to create, create melting based on that pressure. So the bottom would, would melt away. I mean, Remember that old experiment Mr. Wizard used to do where he would pull the wire <laughs> through the ice cube? <laughs> but what about, I mean, what about like an ice shelf in, in Antarctica? Well, they have, the, the ice shelves we did this show, they're hemmed in by mountain ranges and things like that. So Richard Alley, the glaciologist, was explaining to us that the ice wants to spread out just like water on a table, but it basically stops spreading when it hits some kind of obstruction. I see. So, uh, you, could, so you couldn't have so like... That would support, I think, what Joe was saying. Right. But you couldn't have like two mountains on either end of the wall in term, you know, and, and have the wall... Well, yeah, then you could. No, then you could. Then the ice couldn't. Yeah. Like a glacier. Um, so by the way, Game of Thrones update for everybody. Um, we just, just tweeted this. Uh, so George R. R. Martin has said um, two words that are um, explicit and given the middle finger to those fans who are afraid he will die um, before Games of Th- Game of Thrones is completed. He wants people to stop asking about his health. Yeah, you know, well, for a guy who, uh, if he's going to write his stories using a DOS computer like we found out, you know, he's he's above all, all criticism. I give him props for that. So what else have you been thinking about, Joe? Um, well, you know, the, I want to also give a, a, a shout out on this Game of Thrones thing. The coolest thing I found in, uh, in, in this episode was, was the geology, this geologic history of Game of Thrones. The guys, a, a great blog, Generation Anthropocene. Hope everybody out there goes to check it out. They did like a 500 million year reconstruction of the geologic history of Westeros and Essos. And it's just like the best nerd candy I've ever found. <laughs> yes. We I shared that on the Inquiring Minds Facebook page when it came out. So we we've already given the nerds their candy. <laughs> <laughs> if you give a nerd a cookie, you know what happens. Yes, yes, they 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 leave behind crumbs. Um, so you know, there's one other thing that I I wanted to ask you about. You did you did a very cool video with just this amazing hook into explaining why our brains sometimes make errors, and that is, you know, it was about. Why do we blow on our Nintendo cartridges, or did we blow? Because I guess nobody uses Nintendo anymore. But I did. I, you know, you took the thing out and blew on it, uh, and you thought that it worked. Expl- why did you explain explain that video a little? Uh, I was I was chatting with with David McRaney, who wrote the book "You Are Not So Smart" uh, website. Mm-hmm. "You're Not So Smart." Great great collection of our cognitive biases. And I was trying to look for a way to kind of explain some of these brain tricks that, that, that are so common. And you guys know, the listeners of your shows know these very well. Um, you know, things like motivated reasoning and, and, and the post hoc fallacy and things like this that, that trick us in climate change and vaccine denial. Uh, we realized that Nintendo cartridges were the perfect example of this. It's like the thing didn't work. Uh, we blew some air into it through our mouths, put it back in, and all of a sudden it turns on. And we're like, okay, that clearly was the, was the reason. Um, but, it, I mean, it's really because our brains, you know, these are hyperactive pattern recognition machines. Uh, and, you know, this is the same thing that's happening when, uh, when you push an elevator button that probably doesn't do anything, but it makes you feel good because you did it. We just have a really hard time of connecting cause and effect. Um you know, if, if you dig into a Nintendo game, actually, why it didn't work, sure, you, you'd have to basically store them in a bag of flour to uh, use this dust explanation that people have. Huh. Uh, it's really because there's this weird spring-loaded mechanism in there that makes the contacts. That would just wear out over time. 
Uh, and it just took a couple tries of getting it seated correctly, whether or not you blew on it, to get it going. Uh, so this is a, sort of this perfect example of of, uh, of confirmation bias and, and and incorrectly connecting cause and effect. Right, right. Let me, no, so let me just get one thing straight here. Um, are you saying that, because I know a friend who has this theory, that the door close button in the elevator is a placebo, like you push it? And nothing actually happens, but you think that it you think that it causes the door to close, but it's just there to make you feel better. There are reports that some <laughs> elevator buttons may be disconnected, but it actually is well known. It's well known in New York City that a lot of the crosswalk buttons are unplugged and do nothing. Oh, really? But yeah. they but they haven't taken them out because it makes people feel good. Look, look. The truth is, it's how you push the button that's really important. It's the technique of the button pushing. <laughs> you have to stand there and tap it like thirteen times. That's the or really push number. it deeply and slowly, like. You know, one long push. Because <laughs> that the computer will really understand what you mean now, not later. Exactly. <laughs> uh, it's so cool. I, I mean, I highly recommend people go to the comments section below my video because it's just proving the video over and over that I've destroyed <laughs> this childhood dream uh, memory. People are just refusing to let go. And actually, you know, you know, Chris, you know this well. It's like they're holding on even tighter to this idea now that, that someone has told them that it's not true. It's it's just like the experiment is being done in the comments. It's amazing. Oh, that's that's awful. I mean, it was based on a on a a seemingly plausible theory, which is that there was some kind of dust interfering with the the little point that seemed the part of the cartridge that seemed to have the information on it. I mean, I, I'm I'm happy to have it refuted, but I guess that it seemed you know naively logical, right? Uh, and like, how did this? spread so widely pre-internet like we just by ravens exactly <laughs> by ravens oh i'm just so, so fascinated with so many parts of this story um you know no it was a great video it was really a great video so speaking of superstition one thing we want to talk about today was some interesting new debunkings of paranormal things not like they haven't been debunked enough but maybe they can never be debunked enough so Let's turn to Bigfoot. There's a geneticist named Brian Skikes. He analyzed the actual hair claim that people have claimed is are from Bigfoot sightings, yet some Yeti sightings, and and different other strange uh, cryptozoological creatures. So he went to some museum. What museum would have this stuff? I was wondering when I was reading the story. But okay, Quote, oh, I know one. Uh, when I was oh, really? yeah, when I was in Nepal. <laughs> Um, we were trekking to the mount, uh, to the base camp of Mount Everest, and along the way, there was a museum that had a Yeti head yeah. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it would be hard to get the believers to give you their samples. <laughs> but in any case, he analyzed this, did DNA analysis, what, you know, genes are in this hair. Uh, and it was like all ordinary animals, cows, sheep. A tapir, in one case, a horse. <laughs> now, tapirs are, are interesting for many reasons, uh, yeah. but I'll, I'll allow you to Google that yourself for the listeners. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going, and I've actually seen it at the zoo. <laughs> oh, boy. One very special reason. But yeah, it's like the most uh, unsurprising scientific finding in a long time that something that we already were very sure did not exist actually does not exist <laughs> yes yes and then there's ufos okay so this is the second part of the story uh the economist recently plotted ufo sightings by time of day uh and joe i know you just shared this um blogged this and they divided the day rather crudely into working hours drinking hours and sleeping hours <laughs> the drinking hours are from five to eleven and lo and behold, the vast bulk of the sightings were in drinking hours. So if it's dark out and you've been drinking, your chances of seeing a flying saucer go way up. 
But I wonder if that's actually cultural, because of course, there are some in some cultures, like in the UK, you drink right after work. So, you know, is there a correlation with the, the, the cultural sightings and the drinking hours? Yeah, it was only in the US, I think. Oh, okay. So, yeah, if we go to, if we go to Ireland, we might we completely break this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure people see different kinds of UFOs in different cultures, because it's all suggestion, right? Or even if or whether they see UFOs at all, if nobody's planted the idea in their culture that there is such a thing. People aren't going to go see them. Well, you know, what we should get out there is that the UFO is a thing that can actually exist. Um, this is, it's just an unidentified flying object, right? We're talking about like the alien version of UFOs. Sure. Sorry. Yeah. And that is a common um, mistake that I made. But, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> not to correct you too, story, but this is kind of interesting because it shows sort of the misconnection that people apply. Like I see lots of things in the sky that could, that maybe because a cloud is partially covering the blinking light of the plane that we could, you could you misinterpret under the influence with a BAC of uh, 0.1 or above. But yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the truth is there are lots of UFOs. There are just not many of them that are actually spaceships, you know, from the alien uh-huh. world. <laughs> Right. And during sleeping hours, that's when they're actually probing you, but you don't know it. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. I'd like to see these two uh, investigations combined. Maybe we could could do a drinking hours comparison, <laughs> your campsites and, and Bigfoot sightings. Uh, so, okay. So speaking of uh, random studies and ones that might actually make it into the bad ad hoc hypothesis festival, I want to talk about a study that I came across, which was done in Vienna. It was published in the journal Cortex. Um, and let me just read you the title, which is kind of awesome. It's a latent variable analysis that indicates that seasonal anisotropy accounts for the higher prevalence of left-handedness in men. So let me unpack that for you. It basically means that there are more left-handed men born during the winter than in any other time of year. Um, and so you might think, okay, well, that's a totally spurious correlation. And of course, the effect is pretty small. So, you know, about 8.2% of left-handed men are born, you know, between February and October, between November and January, that number rises to 10.5%. So, you know, it's a 2% difference, not very big. But there's a theory out there from the 1980s uh, that suggests that because testosterone delays the maturation of the left brain during uh, the development of the fetus, um, and that the left brain is dominant among, among, among people who are right-handed, and we know that testosterone is higher in men and that maybe the mother's testosterone is affected by seasonality because more daylight may increase testosterone levels, blah, blah, blah. So wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a just so story if I've ever heard one. But what do you guys think? Yeah, I think you had five layers of maybe in there. <laughs> like we're in like a maybe inception right now. Uh, yeah, I want to see the error bars. <laughs> Produce the error bars before I – I mean, this is just 2%. I mean, there's so many kind of like – uh, how does this testosterone effect all of a sudden switching the dominant side of the brain? Like it would make, there's a lot of kind of stories we could tell that, that would make a lot more sense than just flipping. I don't know. Maybe the baby was laying on its right versus its left inside of their mothers in the wintertime. Who knows? Yeah, yeah maybe it's warmer but, on one but end. But it sounded like, you know, it did sound like, uh, you know, reading this, it is well established that men are more likely to be left-handed than women. Is that, you know... That's sort of a fact about the world and not something that's subject to interpretation. It seemed like they were starting from that premise. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a lot of these these 
sort of small details of it seem, you know, are true. Yeah, you know, it is true that it, that testosterone affects brain development. It is true that testosterone is affected, obviously, by things that the mother does or is exposed to. Um, so, you know, each of these initial sentences is plausible. What, what seems mm-hmm. far-fetched to me is stringing them all together to create an explanation for this very yeah. small effect. What is what is interesting? It, what is interesting if you look at like there's this the chart that went out uh, like a year or two ago about the most common birth dates uh, throughout the year. You can and winter is actually when l- the the least people are born. So that's kind of is kind of like a question mark here. You you kind of imagine uh, maybe if there were more people born in the winter time, you could explain this result. But it's kind of funny to see that increase. Well, isn't the winter time hmm. when babies are being made? I think so. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Huh. What else is there to do? So, <laughs> so <laughs> ski. People should ski more. <laughs> yes, and lots of hot cocoa. <laughs> yes. So, speaking of hot cocoa, Joe, I hear also there was a peach pie in your recent past. Yeah. So this weekend, I found myself the proud owner of like four or five pounds of peaches. So, when life gives you peaches, you bake a pie. Uh, while I had this in the oven, I went online and I encountered this awesome infographic about the peach by a guy named James Kennedy. He's a chemistry teacher who makes these awesome infographics that try to break down the, the chemical fear. Uh, and uh, in this infographic, he shows on the left this sort of 4000 BC origin of what we call a natural peach. And then this on the right, our modern artificial peach. Uh, and it's sort of, I love it because it just, it breaks down this, this, this fear of this word artificial because all that really means is that we've artificially selected it. Uh, and it's, it's just sort of amazing to see this thing change over time. Uh, people might know James from his a famous infographic he did showing the ingredients list for a natural banana with all of the complicated chemical words that you don't even understand. Uh, I just love that sort of being careful with our words lesson in chemistry that we shouldn't be so chemical fearful. It's very cool. The little, the original peach is this tiny little, I don't know. I don't know what it even looks like. It looks like a cherry. Yeah. Like a little sour thing. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly wouldn't make pie out of. You know, what's really interesting uh, on this infographic, he shows the sugar content in peaches over time. uh, And the sugar content hasn't changed in like 6,000 years from this tiny little cherry, nasty, dried up rock pebble fruit to this bulbous, juicy, wonderful summer treat that we have today. Uh, What they've done is just decrease the water percentage through artificial selection. It's sort of awesome to see that like that's the change in the peach. Uh, just made it bigger and taken out some of the water. Uh, it's a really cool infographic. People should go check it out. You can go see it at it's okay to be smart.com along with a lot of other great things that I put up. Wow. Well, so next time we get, you know, a, a denunciation of genetically modified foods, you should just show some of these pictures <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and say, look, this is a non-genetically modified food. That's, yeah, actually, that's a great idea for a story, actually, is to get all the fruits even and just show the original and the, the artificial. Show this 4,000 years ago. Yeah. Created by breeding. No artificial, quote, genetic modification. Right. If people like their apples, bananas, and oranges, they better uh, start learning what those things mean. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you live in Austin and not in San Francisco because I would love to try the peach pie that you baked. Uh, But thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Johansson. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thanks. Thank you guys for having me. A lot of fun. Okay. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Arthur I. Miller. As an Inquiring Minds listener... I think it's a safe assumption that you are the kind of person who likes to learn new things. In fact, you probably never stop 
learning over the course of your entire life. And that's why here, Chris and I and our producer Adam are big fans of The Great Courses. Uh, The Great Courses has been in production for over 20 years and they offer totally engaging lectures by top professors who are experts in their fields. So we recently listened to one of their courses. It's called Your Deceptive Mind, A Scientific Guide to Critical Thinking Skills by Dr. Stephen Novella, who we're a big fan of him. He's been a prior guest on the show. And of course, we listened to him on Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. And, you know, as you know, this topic just dovetails perfectly with a lot of things we talk about. And even with this show today, for instance, the blowing on Nintendo cartridges thing, I think that would fit really nicely with the fifth lecture of the course, which is about pattern recognition and seeking what's not there, which is what I was doing as a kid when I really just wanted to play Contra. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and if you've ever found yourself at a cocktail party and you didn't know what to say to the person next to you, this course will give you so many things to talk about, uh, little things that you know, can make you feel as though you definitely know more than your conversational partner, which may or may not give you any friends. But in any case, it will certainly make you a little bit smarter. Yeah, in conversations, I just like to say, well, you just uttered a logical fallacy. And here's why. <laughs> exactly. That's wonderful. Okay, yeah. <laughs> party on, Chris. <laughs> right. Party on. Short party. Okay, so for a limited time, The Great Courses is giving a special offer to our listeners. You can order Your Deceptive Mind by Dr. Stephen Novella and get 80% off of the original price. But the 80% savings is just available for a short time, so don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds to take advantage of this special offer. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiringminds. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Arthur Miller. Great pleasure to be here. I wanted to start today by talking about the layperson's perception that scientists and artists represent two extremes of a continuum. Um, but there are examples of individuals in history who have made significant contributions to both. So the one that comes to mind most readily is Leonardo da Vinci, for example. So why do so many people these days see art and science as opposites? Well, for, for Leonardo, there was no need to make any distinction between art and science. They were, they were one subject. Uh, what happened was that uh, well, one can place the situation in, in 1687 when Isaac Newton published his Principia, which laid the foundations for modern science. And at that point, uh, what also was kick-started was the age of rationalism, that uh, logical reasoning and science was, was the truth, and what art was was merely frivolous. And this situation lasted, uh, although not an extremity, it did for the most part, until um, I would say the beginning of the of the 20th century, when artists began to think like scientists and scientists began to think like artists. That was a situation with Einstein discovering relativity theory. He did so because he thought like an artist, invoking concepts such as symmetry and beauty. And Picasso... Uh, what was extremely important to Picasso in his uh, in his setting down of the painting Les Demoiselles d'Avignon in 1907 were developments in the avant-garde in science, technology, and mathematics. And I have pinpointed in my book Colliding Worlds that uh, actual collaborations between artists and scientists began in the early 1960s in in New York City. Uh, today there are still holdouts. There are still people who think science is science and art is art, but that is very far from the situation because uh, it is very, very uh, common and meaningful today for artists to indulge in science and technology in doing their work. 
So it's kind of easy to define what science is because we have a scientific method, um, but it's much harder to define art. So how would you, if someone came up with you, came to you with a, a product and you had to put it into an art box or some other box, how would you do that? Well, that, that's, that, that was done before. I mean, there was a scientific method to be sure, but that my scientists don't use the scientific method that we learn and that we learn in, in universities. Um, there are artists who are engaged in doing their work using science and technology. As a matter of fact, um, what, what I believe is that art, science, and technology are fusing into one, into a third culture. And what we know today as art, science, and technology is, is rapidly disappearing. Uh, so there, I mean, what, what is, what is cutting edge? In, in what's called art, is art done using science and technology. So then how do I distinguish whether something is, and is, are, you, are you saying then it is impossible to distinguish art from science? No, no, it's possible to, to, to distinguish what's, what some artists uh, today, cutting-edge artists, derisively call flat art. Uh, there, there's painting, painting landscapes. There is uh, Jeff Koons. Um, but uh, Damien Hirst and people like that are actually involved in, uh, in, in, in art and incorporating art and science into their work. And there are people who still do classical sculpture. Uh, but what uh, a lot of people can't seem to understand, I see it in my lectures and the lectures of others who work, in, uh, who work along in art, science, and technology, is that many people still believe that, that there is only an aesthetics for art. There's no aesthetics for science. Uh, true, there is aesthetics for art, of classical art, of form, for example, uh, aesthetics, which, which is in the eye of the beholder, but there is also aesthetics in science. There's aesthetics in biology. Uh, form is beautiful in biology, but it's form as adapted to nature. And when one gets into the physical sciences, one can even quantify aesthetics even more uh, in that, for example, we've heard the phrase, uh, this is a beautiful equation, and an equation is beautiful if, if it maintains its form onto the interchange of certain of its variables. And those interchanges, if it maintains its form, then it also implies certain symmetries in nature. And lo and behold, experiments have uh, have revealed that these symmetries actually exist. So one, I want to turn back to this idea of the third culture that that the line between artists and scientists is being is being fused is blurring is yes, blurring. Um, and I guess one of my fears uh, as a person who is trained as a scientist, is that science strives to be objective, right? We're trying to discover what is true for everybody, whereas art is subjective. So it's about using a, a personal experience to, to see what's universal. So is that a problem? No, it's a, well, it's a problem for some people, but it's, uh, it's not a problem for uh, those, who work, who, those who work in art, science, and technology. Just the notion of, uh, of a new form of art is emerging. Uh, something which is not the purely subjective form of art. And uh, the sciences as we know them today, I mean, you were trained in, bi in biology, I, 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 I gather. Mm -hmm. Neuroscience, but yes. Yeah, uh, neuroscience, yeah. Uh, even notions of neuroscience today will simply not do for looking into such subjects as, as consciousness, for example, uh, because the, the um, uh, neuroscience, uh, physics will change as... Um, as they become combined with what's called with, with what's called the arts, and also uh, they are unifying. For example, uh, neuroscience is, is something that takes into account physics, 
and biology as well. There's nanotechnology, biomedical sciences. There are departments called engineering sciences, something unheard of 20 years ago. So the sciences are emerging, and so-called new sciences are emerging, sciences that can deal with not only problems like consciousness, but problems of becoming, how, how systems all of a sudden snap from being chaotic to being symmetrical. But I'm still going to strive as a scientist to remove myself from my observations as much as possible, right? Because, you know, I, I don't want, I, I know that I have personal biases that I bring and prejudices, and I want to take those out. Whereas I feel that for a lot of artists, bringing themselves into their work is actually a key component of what they do. Well, they bring themselves into their work when they work in, with science and uh, science and technology as well. It's just another way of expressing themselves. Uh, previously, art dealt with emotions, with landscapes, and now it deals with, uh, with, with, with technology as well. So they bring themselves into their work, but in, in a different matter. I mean, art is being redefined just as aesthetics is being redefined. Um, I just, we just discussed how aesthetics is being redefined. How art is being redefined is, is very straightforward because it's being uh, enmeshed with or merging with science and science and technology. And do you think that this relationship is truly reciprocal in that I can see how artists can be inspired by what the latest science and technology can show them? Um, but I wonder to the extent which, uh, scientists themselves can, you know, are, are, are they equally influenced by the artists now who seem to be part of their, their world? Or is it, is it that this relationship is more one-sided? Well, that's very, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, the hour right now is really running from science towards art, but there are, there are cases where it is running both ways. Um, in, uh, when I wrote my book, I, uh, cut the book up into certain chapters into the oldest form of what I call art sci that's uh, biology inspired art and the next next oldest form is physics inspired art well, I should say really say influence rather than inspired uh, and then there are the so-called media arts there's media art per se there's uh, sound art robotic interaction art uh, data visualization art and so on and the artists who deal in those subjects that is say the media arts sound art, data visualization art, they are artists and scientists wrapped into one. So in those subjects, there's no, there's no question about it. In fact, when I, uh, uh, my book is to some extent driven by interviews I did with over 100 artists and scientists, prominent members of this, of this new art movement. And uh, when I spoke with people in the media arts and I brought up the notion of the third culture, they said, what's the big deal? It's here already. It's us. So there are there are people doing it and uh and the but in, in biology influenced art and physics influenced art there's still the issue of the hour running both ways. It will run both ways eventually when there's more and more of emerging. And and you might wonder, you know, well, how can one person know everything? How can there be Renaissance people? But actually what's happening now is one has a merging of the sciences and uh so there'll be less to know in the sciences, so to speak. There will be data that is very important today, but will be less important. There will be uh, uh, subjects um, which become which will become less important. The laws of science will become more and more compressed. And so, when the merge the merge merging comes with art, um, there will be uh, people who can do it all. But however, what one has to bear in mind uh, is the of the curricula in, in the universities, that has to be changed. That's changing somewhat now, and that will take a long time. 
actually because universities as you know are are built in are built into departments you you are uh hired in a department you become you become promoted to a department and so on so these so super departments will have to be formed and things will have to change a great deal but we we already have denizens of the third world of, of the third culture among us so I do hear that the future of universities is in these kind of super departments, as you describe them, departments yeah. that are based on you know a particular topic rather than a discipline, right? So yeah, you know, problem climate change, right. problem, right? right. Um, and a number of organizations now, including universities, are bringing artists in residence uh, to work with their scientists. And sometimes, though, I hear that you know, a lot of the, although the public, you know, this gives the public a chance to, you know, come into the scientific world and start to understand it in a different way. The scientists themselves sometimes complain that they're disappointed in, you know, they thought that it would be a bigger influence on in their work. And yet, uh, it wasn't. Did you hear a similar complaint from the scientists uh, that you talked to? Or Absolutely. Uh, there are many issues involved. Yeah, the issue of collaboration, I found in my book is an absolute minefield. And I, I collaborated my, myself with an artist and encountered the problems, and so did the artist as well. Uh, the, one of the uh, main problems here is that the, the, the artists who come into these departments, science departments, don't know very much science. And so they don't make very much of a contribution. I mean, when I wrote my book, I, I, the outside world is a bottomless pit, so to speak, and um, uh, my my boundary line, so to speak, uh, that I drew for what artists I would I would use, uh, with that were artists who collaborated with scientists or artists who made a serious attempt to understand science. And I looked into work that could react back on science itself. So you have the issue of science of artists coming into science departments who don't know very much science. And then on the other hand you have a lot of scientists who uh you know they they may be extremely smart in physics and mathematics, but uh, they aren't that cultured. And so they have no idea of of what the world of art is about. I'll, I'll bet uh, there are many scientists I know who, who have never gone to an art gallery. So how are they going to deal with uh, with artists? And this uh, this has to change. And um, uh, collaboration is is an issue that has to be looked into carefully. Yeah, I mean, I think you're you're exactly right in that scientists and artists still don't have a, a common conversation for the most part, and they don't really understand how to talk to each other. Um, I, I've had an experience myself working with uh, an artist, uh, Deborah Ashheim, who who works with sort of neuroscience subjects, and we've had a fruitful collaboration, but it took a long time for us to come up with a common language. It takes time. I mean, both sides both sides have to make an effort. It's not something that's a, you know, you just pass in the night and you you know interact and then. Move away. Yeah, and I think sometimes scientists aren't clear what it is in it for them. They don't understand the benefit of working with an artist. It just seems like it's a time commitment that is not going to lead to any kind of a fruitful product. So what would you say to the scientists who, you know, to convince them that actually this is an important thing to do? Well, I would say, first of all, they have to be serious about it. And they have to devote some of their time to this. And a lot of scientists, I mean, you really don't have the time for it. So they have, they have to be open to it. They have to uh, devote time to it. And they have to learn the art as well as, as the artist has to learn uh, the methods of science. And uh, actually, there are a lot of science, uh, artists seem to go for um, uh, working with, with bi- people in neuroscience and biology because the, the concepts are, in quotes, um, easier. <laughs> no insult. <laughs> They're easier than they are in uh, physics, and they can also work in a laboratory. If artists try to work in a physics laboratory like CERN, they get killed. 
So sure. there's, there's something there's something there as well. Um, collaboration will take a while, and I don't think this project, this this uh, this phenomenon of speed dating is is going to do it. You know, where artists and scientists uh, meet in a big room and they speak to each other for about thirty seconds and see if they can get along. Yeah, that's very common. It seems these kinds of events, uh, and so yeah, and and they haven't proven to be as fruitful as people expected them to be. No, nothing. No, nothing at all. But you've also talked in about how the very labels of artist and scientist are becoming irrelevant. So right. uh, talk a little bit about that, and and what label then would you use to describe people that work in those fields? Okay, well, a nice a nice example here is the uh, media artist uh, Ken Perlin, who was at the MIT, who was at the NYU Media Lab. And uh, what Perlin did was from complex notions of mathematics and physics, he created what came to be known as Perlin noise, which is a means for uh, making animated figures more lifelike. And uh, colleagues and, and animated figures produced by, by Pixar, for example. Now, colleagues and also the hundreds of thousands of people who go to see Pixar films consider these, these, uh, these creations to be, to be aesthetic. Um, and indeed, Perlin won an Oscar for his uh, for his work, which is something pretty good for somebody who has a undergraduate degree in physics and then a graduate degree in computer science. When I asked Perlin what he considers himself to be, either an artist or a scientist, he said neither, a researcher. And we recall Picasso's words from many years ago that an artist is a art is is research. In other words, the the labels artists and scientists are becoming incre- increasingly irrelevant. These people like to be called researchers. So let's talk a little bit about what some of these researchers have come up with. I want to talk about a few examples of art that has been influenced by cutting-edge science. And I want to start out with my favorite one, which is the bioluminescent bunny. Right. Well, that was created by uh, Eduardo Katz. And it was to uh, look at the it, look at ethical issues, essentially, in, uh, in gene therapy. And what he did was to transplant uh, genes from a jellyfish into into a rabbit. So when certain light is shown on the rabbit, the rabbit glows. And so what are some of the ethical implications of this kind of work? Well, uh, how far should you go with it? Well, yeah, I mean, now you're involving a live, a live thing. <laughs> That's right, a, li- a live thing. And uh, Katz wanted to take it out of the laboratory and uh, take it on a, wor- a worldwide tour. And the scientist uh, who was head of the lab wouldn't let the rabbit out. And then there was a big to you know Katz is also a performance artist. He had a big uh, free free the Alba campaign. So it's how far you should go in in transplant gene transplantation. Uh, another uh, example is uh, Marion Laval Jante, who had massive infusions of of blood of horse blood. And uh, her being a performance artist also, she walked around with the horse from from which the blood was taken while she was wearing prosthetic horse hooves. And uh, the point of, of that exercise was to uh, uh, advise everyone of the of the crossover between animal and human in, for example, transplantation of, of animal organs into humans. You know, in science, we have a, a very strong ethics committee that has to give us permission to do the work that we do. It occurs to me, hearing about this horse, that, you know, is there the same 
uh, sort of thing in, in the art world where is it okay to harm another animal according to other artists? Well, the horse wasn't the horse wasn't harmed, but yes, there are there are ethics committees um, involved. Uh, there are ethics committees, uh, uh, particularly uh, I know of in the UK and the USA. Okay, but so yes, there are there are, there, there are ethics committees involved. And just as there are ethics committee involved in uh, uh, animal animal research, and uh, in, in in that sense, biology influenced art is is singular in that. I mean, there doesn't have to be ethics committees in media art or or, or physics, but uh, what biology influenced art is very adventurous. What it, what it tries to do is to look at what the body will be like in the 21st century, what radical changes the body will undergo. So, for example, there's the artist Stellart, who has a left ear uh, implanted on his left arm. It's not the left ear like we have on our heads. It's Stellark's uh, stem cells uh, woven into a biodegradable uh, polymer frame, and which grows on his arm more and more into what an ear should look like. And then he will have uh, a blue chip device inserted into it, which will connect Stellark with the web. Hmm. I mean, there's another interesting kind of, on the other side of the ethics question, there's also an artist that has tried to create a suicidal robot. Is that correct? Um, I don't know that much about that. Okay. But it, it is, it is, it is correct. Yes. And and then BioArt has again, it, it is singular in that it, it produces uh, somewhat, sometimes crazy things, um, very adventurous things, and and sometimes humorous things as well. Like you talk about some designer butterflies too. Are, are these are these butterflies that people are you know genetically modifying for? No, they're not genetically modified at all. That's the big thing about them. Uh, the artist who uh, works with them, Martha Martha Dumenezes, uh uses uh, takes a hot needle and uh, probes into um, into the caterpillar, and out comes these butterflies you know, in, into the papua, whatever that's called, and. Uh, Outcomes butterflies with um, asymmetrical wings. Wow, that's that's amazing. There's also in the performance theater uh, a domain. There's there are a few somewhat disturbing examples in your book that I read about, um, including one person who sort of had surgery, you know, performed. Is this is this the ear that oh, you're Orlan, talking about? Orlan, Orlan in uh -huh. France. Orlan is another performance artist who goes even farther than Stellark and farther than Marianne uh, Jean Jante. Uh, yes, uh, she has uh, uh, surgery done um, as much as possible with a local anesthesia. And it's a, it's a performance in which uh, uh, the surgeon is a, is a co-artist, is an artist scientist, so to speak. And in the background, poetry is being read and music is being played. <laughs> so it's, like she's, control, she's in control of her own body. It seems as though one of the sort of caveats of, of science influencing art is that science and technology seem to change very, very rapidly. So is there a danger then of this science-inspired art to become irrelevant more quickly? Uh, no, actually not. Um, uh, no, not at all. Uh, one, of, one of the problems with it is uh, for science-influenced art, for the whole this whole art size scene to be accepted by the establishment art world, something which does not take place at, uh, presently. So, oh, so it's not an established part. So, you, so that's where you come in with your the cutting edge ideas. That that's that. Yes, this is still that, that, not. It is that, that is a new avant-garde. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you if you compare this with, with what was going on in France in the 19th century, for example, and uh, in in 1863, where works by Monet and Manet were uh, were not 
exhibited in establishment salons, they started their salon de, de refusé. And that happened a couple of other times in France. And uh, we have the same situation now with uh, works by um, artists in this art side realm, which are not accepted by establishment galleries and uh, and museums because they don't satisfy the the checkpoints. For example, they're not commodifiable. They're not they're not unique. They may not even last very long physically. And they the salon de refusé these days are a very immense, uh, very impressive buildings, often with laboratories in them, such as Ars Electronica in Linz, Austria, Le Laboratoire in Paris, uh, Science Gallery in Dublin. Uh, these are places that exhibit and, and sell that art. That was one of the issues that Deborah and I faced when we were um, finding places to show the work that we had created is that we, we were sort of in this in-between zone between it's not it's not quite for the Exploratorium or the Science Museum right, set, yeah. Yeah. but it's also not really accepted in, in you know, the mainstream art world. Absolutely. Um, so then is it the artists themselves that are creating these other alternative spaces or? Well, the artists and, and technologists together. Remember, they're one. This is, this is, this is the media world. Uh, the world of media art, of, of electronic art, they're, they're at one. And uh, these people, as uh, one artist said in my book, well, the hell with them. We'll, we'll just do it on our own. So we've talked a little bit about some specific examples of, of art that's science-inspired, but I also want to talk about a specific place in which artists have been welcomed and, and to get your idea of how successful that was. And this is, I'm thinking about CERN. Uh, and so tell us a little bit about what's happened at CERN and, and what has been successful and what is not. Well, CERN has invited artists in, in, a, in an artist-in-resident program. There's a competition, and um, they're, they're, their heart is in the right place, but uh, they, the first two artists that they had, uh, I think, were inappropriate. Now they have a very appropriate artist, someone who does data visualization art. I mean, science is data these days. We're in the age of information. We read about it all the time. For example, articles about the National Security Administration. And what data visualization artists do is to mine huge caches of data with algorithms and attempt to represent the data aesthetically. And this is what the current artist is doing at CERN. And I, I think that is, that is the right way to go. So in, in this sense, uh, we, we might have something very interesting coming out. And not only that, but it seems in that case, you could actually then inspire the scientists uh, to think in a different way, too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they are being inspired by this artist. That's excellent to hear. I wonder, though, as these two fields get fused, art and science, into the third culture, as you call it, uh, that we're also going to start to lose the sense of, you know, what we're, what really is, is art, what is science. And, and another word that has become this kind of buzzword or, or catch-all is creativity. So I was going to ask you about, and I know that you've talked about this in the past, um, about, about creativity and what that means, uh, both in, in, in either world uh, or what it means to you. And why is it that, you know, it's become such a buzzword, mainstream kind of thing, even though it's hard for many of us to define? Well, I mean, it, uh, to me, it's pretty easy to define as the production of, uh, of, 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 new, of, of something new from, from something old. Um, there are people who say, we can talk a lot about this, there are people who seem to believe these days that artists can be creative, but scientists can't be creative, which is, which is rather, you know, silly from the word go. Uh, what one has now are, uh, new modes of creativity and people working with, uh, 
uh, art, science, and, and, and technology. And the works that are being produced are are highly highly creative. They're more radical than anything has ever been produced before, and that certainly uh, shows that the new art movement, what I call art sci, is is the new avant garde. There's no question about creativity. I can't even understand why why there is such a you know uh, an issue about it. Well, I think that for a lot of people, one of the other elements of creativity is not just that you're recombining two things in a novel way, um, but rather that you're also creating something that has some kind of usefulness, even if that usefulness is defined by the domain. So for the case of art... Well, creativity doesn't necessarily mean, mean usefulness. Creativity can be... Uh, I mean, nothing useful is coming out of the Large Hadron Collider. Probably nothing useful will ever come out of the Higgs boson. But it was hard, the whole process of discovering it and then of of... of of making the hypothesis of the Higgs boson and then discovering it in, in a laboratory that was highly creative all the, way, all the way along the line. So to me, creativity is not, you know, doesn't have to go along with usefulness. I mean, I think that you could argue that, a high intellectual exercise. that there is a usefulness to, you know, finding more about the physical world and the Higgs boson, et cetera. But what's not oh, but, necessarily... But cure cancer or build you, build you better motor cars. Well, we don't know. We don't know. Control. <laughs> I we, think... don't, we don't know, but it, it doesn't seem to be that. But possibly, you know, hold all options open, of course. I don't want to be hemmed in on this, but uh, it's, not, it's not immediately useful. But I guess what I'm kind of pushing back against is the idea that, you know, if a three-year-old takes a finger painting and, you know, throws together some lines, yeah, that's creative. It's never been done before. But we wouldn't necessarily call that that person, you know, oh, that, that, that kid is particularly creative. Um, you know, it's no, novel. Creativity with a little C and creativity with a big C, just as uh, I still believe in the notion of, of genius. Right. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that then. What, you know, that's where the sort of usefulness, in my opinion, comes in is when we're trying to distinguish sort of everyday creativity, little c creativity from big c creativity, which is, you know, what makes, what, what creates a big, a big change in a particular domain. So to what extent then, as these, this, this relationship between the artist and the scientist gets fused, I guess one of my worries is that we're going to have a lot of little c creativity, uh, but the big c creativity is going to become harder to come by. No, look, 99.999% of scientists, as you know, do little c creativity. And then along comes somebody who, who busts domains, who, who combines subjects and looks at something in, in ways that nobody ever, nobody ever looked at before. You know, uh, an Einstein, a, a Picasso, a Mozart, for example, uh, even, even, even a Bill Gates. So, um, there is a, there is a distinction here in minds and, and also, um, Although this was not considered PC for a long time, but everybody is not born on an equal basis. Some people are just smarter than others. You know, you can do physics 24-7, music 24-7, athletics 24-7, but you'll never be an Einstein, a, a Mozart, or a Pele. Well, that's that's a conversation for a whole other topic, and I have to say, <laughs> um, you know, yes, yes, I won't even go there. Uh, but uh, oh, why not? <laughs> well, in part because I don't believe that talent is a is a particularly useful construct, especially in the case of someone like Mozart, for example, whose father was considered to be the most prolific and the best music teacher in Europe at the time. And so, by the time Mozart was ten years old, he had his ten thousand hours. But what about so, Bach and his children? His children never came. Never came. Near them. Well, sure, and so although CPE but, and WF are okay, but they never came near the father. Right, but that doesn't necessarily. It, it, then that goes to show that they weren't necessarily, you know, that they didn't have. There wasn't some kind of genetic component to their their talent, or rather that you know. I, th I think I think the, the look at look, look at Newton had no had no uh, you know forebears that 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 
one can, one can mention, neither did Einstein. But it also neither took him a long time to to establish himself. You know, it's not it's it's the prodigies that oh, people sure, point they're, they're, to they're as the talent. Rule. They're, 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 yeah, the ten year rule. Yeah, ten thousand. Okay, that's what you have to practice. <laughs> right. Practice. Okay. Practice. <laughs> so it's not just talent. <laughs> uh, that's quite, that's quite correct. Uh, <laughs> but you have to use that talent. Sure. And, but that doesn't mean also. I mean, there could be lots of Einstein's, Mozart's, and Pele's out there. Um, but there, there are some who can harness harness the talent. But it's more than it's more than just talent itself. Talent per se. There are lots of great, you know, musicians and ball players and things of that sort. But there, there is something. Someone somehow comes along, and it's not just nature nurturing them. Yeah, I think I think the, the the truth is we don't really know what that special sauce is just yet. No, we don't know, but there are certain people who just who touch the cosmos, and I think actually that what work that's going on with algorithms in in the in this third culture uh, could make a difference. I think that the work that's going on with algorithmic investigations of creativity are more fruitful than what goes on in neuroscience. Huh. So do you feel that by understanding some of these algorithms, we actually might be able to answer this question as to what makes someone more eminent? Well, not answer the question, just tap into it. I mean, there are, there are um, algorithms that have been uh, devised that, for example, can produce music that is almost indistinguishable from music produced by Bach. And I, I mean, I've tried in, in lectures that I played the piece produced by a computer, but it's algorithm piece produced by Bach, and um, and well, most people can't can't tell the difference. So, is might there be something in that algorithm that taps into the mind of of, of Bach? And to me, that's important for Bach and Einstein because I, in my platonic way of thinking, uh, these people touch the cosmos. Yeah, you know, there's actually also been a computer-generated composition that won one of the major prizes in a composition competition not too long ago, which is kind of amazing. It's just shocking. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a brave new world, and I guess we'll have to see how this third culture uh, turns out. But thanks very much for being on Inquiring Minds, Arthur Miller. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. So look, very nice interview. I do come off thinking, and Indre, I got the sense that you think this too, that there's a bit too much, I don't know, too much ambition in this argument. Um, okay, that science is influencing art, no question. Um, that certain kinds of art can only be done with certain kinds of scientific techniques that we now possess. That was demonstrated as well. I mean, with things like the glowing bunny rabbit, okay? You need certain science to do that. Um, but... That, you know, that the two are going to merge seamlessly, not proven. Yeah, <laughs> I, I totally agree. I still have a problem with the subjectivity and the objectivity. And I, I do take issue to his idea that, you know, most people don't follow the scientific method as it's taught in schools. I mean, you know, that might be true if it's not taught properly in schools. <laughs> but certainly every scientist I know and work with, you know, at least has the ambition of following the scientific method, uh, you know, in, in terms of be- being objective and really trying to, you know, science is about disproving the hypothesis that that is your sort of working hypothesis as opposed to kind of just going on and, and finding 
new new connections between things. And I, I also take issue, you know, with his very definition of creativity. I, I really do think that there's a very big difference between creativity and novelty. Um, and just like we can put a value on art, you know, we can agree that's good art, that's bad art. It's still subjective, um, but it's more than just novel. And and I think that, you know, we lose some aspect of uh, an, an important insight if we just say, look, anything that's really novel and, uh, is going to be creative. Right. So, you know, I, but I mean, that said, it's it's a really interesting, you know, demonstration of just how much uh, important artists are being influenced by science. I guess it's probably not novel art criticism or art historical work to say that art reflects the era in which it is created, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it always has. And so I think what that might also just say is that we're living in a time when scientific techniques are so prevalent in our lives that, of course, artists are drawn in um, to interact with them. Yeah, and yeah, so. absolutely. And I, I do think that more and more science is going to influence art. And I think eventually yeah. the arrow will turn in the other direction, too, um, as, mm. as you know, we can learn a lot from working with artists. Yeah, and the, the data viz point is probably the most important. I mean, you really, if, if you can do data visualization well, it's quite clear to me that you can uh, make at least you can make scientific findings much more clear uh, and communicable. Whether do you advance science by doing it? Maybe even you do. I don't know. That's another question. But I mean, it's very important to science. Yeah, and you certainly put the humanity back into the work, you know, when you when you bring in an artist, and that's important. Yeah. So great interview and uh, very thought-provoking. Thank you. So that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, peach pie recipes, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. This episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by The Great Courses, who bring the world's greatest professors to your fingertips. With over 500 courses on science, history, philosophy, the arts, and many more topics, The Great Courses are available for digital download and streaming or on DVD and CD. And the best part is that you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of 80% off the original price of one of its courses, and this is your Deceptive Mind, a scientific guide to critical thinking skills by Professor Stephen Novella. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds to find out more. Once again, that's thegreatcourses.com slash inquiring minds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts... I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.